Welcome to Podcast with Cooper Cherry. Today we have a, a very nice treat. We have Christine Chen, a local filmmaker and entrepreneur located here in Austin, Texas. And we are recording from the Austin Public Library in downtown Austin. So Christine, thanks so much for joining me this afternoon. You're welcome. Thank you for inviting me. I appreciate it. All right. It's it's kind of funny. It's, this is like ACL weekend number two, and here we are at the library, like, like a couple We're of super nerds. Cool. Right. Exactly. <laughs> But uh, yeah, it's it's a pleasure to have you on. Um, been looking forward to this for a, for a while. So let's go ahead and, and jump into some uh, some hard hitting questions for you. Okay. <laughs> Oops. So Christine, I first question I had for you was I wanted to get a get a sense of kind of what what your jumping off point was for falling in love with either film production um, storytelling in general, whichever you think you know, whatever area you're most passionate about, like give give us kind of a rundown of kind of what was kind of that first moment that you're like, oh yes, this is this is what I love. Well, I've been playing around with video cameras since a young age. So I remember my dad's VHS camera. So those the little ones where you had the giant tape and you <laughs> right. stick it in and then to edit you just rewind or right. re record. And so that was how I was editing before <laughs> then. I'd say uh, the first time I touched anything professional wasn't until undergrad, actually. Um, took a documentary film class, learned about a, uh, Final Cut was the what was taught at that time. And uh, But I started in documentaries, actually, before I really jumped into narrative. I can pinpoint a moment when it clicked for me for narratives. Okay. Um, Funny story, after I graduated from undergrad, I had a moment where I didn't know where I was going to go, obviously, like all undergraduates, <laughs> and uh, I thought for a brief moment that I wanted to go to law school, and so in order to go to law school, you have to take the LSATs, and uh, like most traditional Asian families, if you take a if you are going to take a standardized test, you end up taking like a class to prepare you for that standardized test. And so I took an LSAT course and my professor was a filmmaker. Oh, wow. <laughs> and yeah, so That's ironic, right? so super ironic. <laughs> and he's like, hey, we're getting ready to do the 40 hour film festival. So uh, if people don't know what the 48-hour film festival is exactly what it sounds like, you make a film in 48 hours, basically. Um, they they give you, like, a line you're supposed to use, a specific character, a prop, and you draw a genre, and you make the film in 48 hours. I'd never done anything like that. I'd never been on a narrative film set. So when I walked onto the set, and I was lucky because... It could have been a really shitty set, but it was actually really, the people were very professional, they knew what they were doing, so it was actually a very organized, well done set. I just was fascinated, and I, I don't know, I think it just was, I fell in love with the world of narrative filmmaking. The I, I remember seeing the, the DP pulling focus with this the focus reel, and I was like, oh my god, because I'd never seen that doing documentary filmmaking. In documentary film, you just take a camera and just shoot just something. Point it. You just point <laughs> it and you cord. That's basically the extent of it. Obviously, there's now more sophisticated documentaries with, like, you know, Chef's Table and stuff where it's the cinematography is actually paid attention to. 
but uh, that was that had been my only experience was point and shoot and then find the story in the edit versus you have a script and there was like a they had a yeah follow focus it was when there was the canon xl2 was what they were shooting with which is a nice hefty looking camera and then uh, i got to open and close the slate which I took very seriously. <laughs> of course. Now I'm like, oh, that's a second AC. It was a second AC. Um, <laughs> but no, I just was Slate Girl, basically. And uh, just, I was just fascinated at just the whole process and the chaos and the organization of that chaos was cool. And then, of course, the the film screen and like neat to see like, hey, we made a real movie. Um, I think that's the moment when I was like, man, I had, I hadn't had this much fun in a while, and it just clicked. It was kind of crazy because I'd never done anything narrative. I'd only done documentary, and the, from that moment on, I was like, I'm going to be a filmmaker. Like it, it, it's a crazy 360 shift. I mean, I had gone to school for economics and management, uh, so I was going on the business route. And, uh, but I just, I felt, I fell in love with that process. And so after that, um, I'm a very competitive person. That's kind of the way I've been brought up. And, uh, you kind of get validated for who you are from why you win. And so, uh, I, my friend, um, who I'd been kind of following his work at Rice University, he was doing narratives and he started winning all these contests with, it's now obsolete, but there was a company called Pop Tent that was uh, doing content with brands. And what would happen with, would be the brands would uh, give a brief of what they wanted, and they would be a cash prize or like seven thousand dollars, ten, eight thousand. Which, if you think of it from a commercial standpoint, is like peanuts. But to like a, a low, no budget filmmaker, right. that's like so much money. Seriously. And they were <laughs> winning these like left and right and. Um, I saw one of the things he made and I was like, I can, I can do that. And so, um, I started trying to kill two birds with one stone. So I just started making a bunch of these spec commercials that are very narrative driven, story driven. And, uh, one, like a few of them and was like, that's proof that this is the route I should go on, that this is like, it was meant to be. And, uh, yeah, just from there on just started making and writing stuff and it was really a one-man show for a, for a very long time before i started to recruit friends and stuff like that yeah what about for just storytelling is there anything because i know for me personally as cliche as it is i have to admit that star wars was like the first film that i that was like the first set of movies that really just captured my imagination as a young kid and i think really propelled my interest in film growing on that now it's like I obsess over story. It's like the movies that I watch, the TV shows. I mean, like I, I get into it. Like I lose myself and immerse myself in the whole experience of the storytelling. So is, is there any, anything like that for you that's kind of a touchstone? Well, I guess when I was growing up, watching movies wasn't really a huge thing. Um, the idea of play was never a really big thing. And so if I did watch anything, it would have been something like on the Disney side. So I, I do remember my first film that I ever watched was Beauty and the Beast in the theaters, and that was a magical experience. 
And uh, I really started to dive into films in undergrad. Okay. Um, my I had a friend who was kind of a troublemaker. He fig- figured out that he could break into the architecture building, and there's a one of the classrooms had a big ass screen, and we would just pop in movies and watch it that way, basically. <laughs> so it was like we had our own personal nice. movie theater. <laughs> And uh, some of the films that we watched were like Old Boy, and which I was really intense. Um, I it was intense, and I didn't know if I liked it or not. But it was like I remembered it. Uh, I mean, I watched Jurassic Park, and I, I loved that. Um, the it, there's like I feel like there's little figments of scenes of visuals that are very strong in my head, but not necessarily like one story okay so i can pinpoint like the moment when the arm dropped onto the guy in jurassic park like there was like a severed arm that like uh the the girl is like she thought her friend's back but it's really a severed arm i had like nightmares like since <laughs> like from that and or the the part where the guy's in the restroom and then the t-rex oh, yeah. comes and eats the and i remember that visually i also remember and i think i saw this very young, and I don't even know which movie it is. I'm suspecting it's The Bodyguard uh, because I wasn't the one with Whitney Houston. Oh, yeah, what. and Kevin Costner. I yeah. don't even know what that story is about, but I just, because I think I was too young, but I just remembered when the, it's so like fuzzy. I just remember a guy jumping into the water and as a little kid being really alarmed by that because I thought it was real. So these just these little tiny moments uh, that are very strong in my brain, but I don't know specifically if it was uh, like a a story itself. And and I think that's kind of the way I've navigated uh, the stories I've wanted to tell. A lot of times it starts with for me an image, a very strong image, um, and from there is the seed, and it continues to build from that. So I. It starts with the with the scene sometimes. So. Okay, cool. Um, yeah, that's great because I was going to ask you. I was planning to ask this a little bit later, but um, so would you say that you think in kind of a visual? Yeah, kind of dude. Style, I, I guess, really or? think visually. It's to the point where you know pe- people can't make a joke without me like laughing to myself because I'm seeing it in a different way. And so, anytime anybody says an absolute of something, I'm never going to something. I immediately think of the thing that they said they're never going to do, cut to 15 minutes <laughs> later, the scene that they said that they weren't going to do. Like it, It's like instantaneous, it's just, and I'm like laughing to myself. Or like if there's a very comedic moment, I think they say something and it cuts to the super wide, and it's, you know, just... I, I'm always visually thinking of little scenes like that. It's, it's very strange. Um, but yeah, I, I definitely am extremely visual... And uh, all sorts of things visually kind of stimulate, um, whether colors or, uh, I don't know, it's, it's, it's very interesting. Yeah, I, I can definitely relate. I feel like I think in a sort of visual language as well, especially when it comes to, um, to filmmaking and just thinking about ideas. There's always some visual component, and I can kind of see it in my head, see the movie kind of unfolding mm-hmm. to a degree. Is um, and that kind of leads me to my next question: is, is storyboarding something that you rely on heavily, or do you just kind of 
So what's I, your approach there? I wish I could draw faster. <laughs> so I would totally storyboard more if I could, if people could understand the drawings that I drew. <laughs> right. So I can draw, but it takes me like three hours to draw something and I have to look at something and visualize. Um, one of my team members, Kelly Penna, who's usually my production designer, draws decently enough that I've sometimes when we do have time, I ask her to storyboard for me. Um, the other way I've storyboarded to get around the fact that I'm terrible fast drawer is um, actually doing digital stills. So I'll take uh, my camera and I'll like digitally still the, the that's worked out really well. Yeah. Um, but of course that there's limitations to that because you may not have access to the location. Right. The visual you're kind of going for right. too. Yeah. And so, um, Man, I'd love it if I had just some cool storyboard artist who just has nothing better to do <laughs> but to draw what's in my brain. Uh, that would be amazing. I I want to storyboard more, and I've I've tried all sorts of things. I've tried programs. Um, yeah. I have this program that allows you kind of to put people and things, but it's very limited, obviously. Um, so I've made. I feel like I spent more times trying to get it to work and to look like what's in my brain, then it would have taken someone else to draw it basically. Yeah. So, um, I, I, I would love to storyboard more because it would help out a lot. And, uh, now I kind of just, the fastest way for me to storyboard is kind of describing it in words. So I'll have like an Excel spreadsheet right. and I'll just okay. be like, here's push in and then a two shot. And then with this rack focus from the foreground to the back. Yeah. Okay. So like, You'll see my shot list. I'll have like long paragraphs of things that, like, if I read it, I understand what it is and I can describe it. But okay, what um, what would you say? Is there like a target number of takes that you go for, or do you just kind of keep going until you get what you, you kind of feel naturally that you've hit that mark? Or what's your approach there? Sure. Um. So I feel like I fight two personalities on set. Um, I often work as an f- assistant director and, a, and I'm often, m- most of my films I produce myself. So that's the logical, like, we don't have enough time. Right. This will cost more money, blah, blah, blah. And then that's fighting my, we, we need to get this take and this emotional feel and blah, blah, blah. So it's a constant battle on set for me. I am slowly trying to separate myself and just be able to just direct so that I'm not fighting that as much. Um, but yeah, I, I, if it doesn't work emotionally, I will do as many takes as it's going to take until it's 3am and I'm realized like, (laughs) Hey, everybody wants to go home. (laughs) (laughs) But, um, I'm, I'm pretty good knowing if we have it. So if it's the first take, I'm I may and I know we have it. I might just do a a safety, you know. Um, but I I don't like overshooting things, and that's probably the AD inside of me. So, uh, so my shoots tend to be fairly fast paced and extremely efficient. So, um, I don't know if that's good or bad, <laughs> because I do feel like there is a benefit to being just. I have been lucky to be on a few sets where I've just directed, and it's really nice because you're just focused on the performances. You're just focusing. You just catch more things versus like when your brain is like, 
are everybody happy? You know, are have they all eaten? You know, and <laughs> right. like, and do we have five more hours before the, the sun gets to a certain level? And then like, there's too many thing people like in your head talking to you. So I don't know. I haven't had that luxury on all my films. What about um? Do you leave a certain amount of space for for improvisation? Because I feel like my in my own experience, when I get somewhere, like when I get to a location then that trigger, get that location alone will trigger an entirely new, like I, I could probably rewrite the scene just showing up and saying, oh, okay, here's what we have to work with. What kind of space do you leave when it I comes to that? I love improv. And I think where it comes from is my background in documentary. Um, I think if I hadn't started in documentary films, I may have become more of a traditional, like go by the script type thing. But it, it's a whole combination of things. Uh, obviously, I'm used to shooting veritas, so you know, just shoot, uh, capture, and then edit. so. Um, and I know that I am, as a writer, I don't consider myself like a true writer, and so I think because of that, I really open to letting the actors and stuff make it their own. Hence the the improv. Um, I've, as I've, as I'm maturing as a writer, I'm definitely seeing that we stick closer to the script now these days, but I'm still open to improving type thing. Um, but I can tell from like the first film I ever made, which was a feature that was like improv city uh, because <laughs> yeah, I was not confident. Didn't have the experience. Yeah, too, right? I was, yeah, I was not a confident writer now as I've, you know, learn more as what's good writing and stuff. I've become more confident in the words that I write, but I will never shut down an actor who says I wouldn't say it this way, or my character doesn't say it this way. I will always listen to that. And, um, that's, that's the beauty. I think I find in, in filmmaking is that collaborative process. So I actually enjoy that. Actually, when people just go by what I want, sometimes it, makes me question if I hired the right people. You, you know what I'm saying? Like, like yeah. I love DPs that say, hey, yeah, let's do this, but let's do one for me. Okay. Let me, tr I want to try this because I'm inspired by this building or I'm inspired by this moment and stuff like that. I love that. Um, when, when I get, when I work with someone who's like, all right, yeah, whatever you want, it like, it kind of loses the fun. It's, it's no longer, it's like, well, are you sure? Like, maybe you have a better idea, you know? So, yeah, so I, I, I love that collaborative process and that breeds into the improv for sure. So you mentioned writing, and I don't think we have talked really about your progression as a writer. Like, when did you, have you written, like, from being a young kid? Was that, like, part of filmmaking, or was this just something that you picked up in the meantime? It's definitely something I picked up. I, I as a technical writer when I started writing anything, was, I'm pretty shitty writing, writer, I think. Um, you know, like, what's bad at the grammatical stuff and, and, and everything. And on the SAT, there's the writing section, and I really needed to study to, like, really learn that stuff. Uh, I would say I learned to write because I edit. No, because I'm so visual. It's, right. It, I can immediately understand why certain writing doesn't work when I see it, but I have to see it. 
So I learned so much from my first feature because I'd write all these things and be like, this is going to be awesome. And in the edit, I'm like, this is the boringest conversation. Why did we shoot this? You know, but I, I had to see it to understand right. why yeah. you don't spend five pages on a monologue, you know, like <laughs> why it's important to have action, breaking up all the dialogue and stuff. But I had to see that firsthand to believe it because I'd been told, you know, I, I took that, that first script to a graduate level writing class and they were like, oh, you need to like add more action in this this is this is a very long dialogue scene you know and i'm like you know ah like structure like what is that like i'm an artist and then you know you get to the edit and you're like oh my god they're right this is so boring so i really learned and i continue to learn how to write through through after making the film and seeing in the post-production and also surrounding myself with people who are much better writers than I am. So I have um, my childhood friend, Eric Huang, who I actually was on the phone with before coming here <laughs> to discuss this other film I just finished making. Uh, but he's a, like a legitimate writer where probably probably the structure, everything's perfect and and he can write and it's okay if it's not made. You know, that's why, that's kind of who I... When I say a real writer, that's what I think about people who are just like on their, you know, uh, typing and <laughs> and they're making stuff and like, hey, if it goes in a drawer, it never gets seen the light of day. It's totally okay. I'm not that way. If I'm going to spend the time writing it, it's because I'm directing the film. Like I I I write so that I can direct the stuff that I want to do. So nice. I think it's so hard. I to me, the most challenging aspect of writing is figuring out how do you, how do you make this interesting? How do you make a conversation seem legitimate or real? Do you, what's your insight there? Do you have anything that you kind of use, or like, did you just kind of learn through trial and error? I think it's a little bit both, and it's also being very observant of our world around us. And so, I do a lot of research uh, when I write characters I don't know anything about. An example would be uh, my short film, My Heart, Yeah, Albi. Uh, it's about a Syrian refugee. I watched a lot of documentaries. I watched a lot of the news. I watched, I watched and observed the people that I was trying to write about to get the dialogue that felt right. And even after that, you know, I interviewed and talked to um, Syrian refugees or, you know, certain, so that it would be as real as it could get. Um, currently I'm doing, I'm writing a feature on, uh, on, on the wine world. I don't know anything about wine. Like for me, wine is like, oh, box, if it tastes good or it doesn't <laughs> taste good, maybe it comes in a box or it doesn't. Like I, I don't know anything about it, but, um, I've, this is like the top of the echelon on, on wine tasters and stuff. So I've watched every documentary that I can get my hands on about wine, some, and uh, just to learn the lingo, just, and I take notes, like copious notes, like, oh, this is what they said. Oh, this is, oh, it tastes like, with a hint of, you know, fresh tennis balls. Like, th these are things I would say. <laughs> but, like, I observe and um, embody uh, what I see around me. Or or I will meet people who are like, you're just like the character I'm writing. And I'm just like, I'm literally on my phone taking notes of what they're saying. I've done that before. I'd be like, can you just, wait, can you just say, <laughs> say that again, you know? Right. So um, people probably think I'm super weird, but 
that's I, I that's the inspiration I draw and I find that through that and trial and error you kind of find a rhythm so okay what about uh because I think for me as well when it comes to writing not only people that I don't know or necessarily have direct understanding but for example for myself like writing a female character I'm I'm sort of lost to a degree because I don't you know what I mean I'm so kind of immersed in my own headspace that it's hard to like figure out the counterpoint or a different perspective sure uh, and that's why like I said that research comes in hand so uh yeah, I've, I've half the. Th- I mean, I, there was a script I wrote about prisoners. Like, I don't know what it's like to be in prison. So I went to a prison and watched people, and I, I watched a lot of documentaries of people in prisons talking about being in prison. So it's. Um, I just try to learn from. I I actually think that my st- strongest writing, oftentimes, is the stuff when I know nothing about. And the reason for that is because you are more aware of all the nuances because you have to learn about them right. versus okay. if you know about them, you kind of forget that the audience didn't know what you, what is in your brain. Makes sense. Yeah. And so if when I have to do a lot of research, I over-research to the point where like because I think about, oh, the backstory and also, and what would this person think like and blah, blah, blah. And I, I'm overanalyzing everything because I don't know it. Um, when, when it's like, right, when I'm writing about me or, or something that I know a lot about, I forget, like, I write it and people are like, well, I remember the first feature, I always, I learned so much from the first feature. So, uh, there was, I come from, um, I went to MBA school, uh, business school. So I come from a business world and I remember writing all this jargon and people were like, I don't know what a pitch deck is. You kept talking about it, but like, I don't know what it is. I was like, uh, duh. I thought everybody knew <laughs> about that, you know? So it's just these little things that I find there's a nice balance. There's, I think my best writing is there's a little bit of me in there somewhere, whether through a personal experience, whether through personal interest, yet I know not enough that I will do the research and write about all the little tiny details I discovered through the research. That makes any sense. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. I think that's really interesting because I've often brought up this point kind of with my own just randomly in the podcast and just with other people is that that sort of the idea of getting habituated to your own environment so that you kind of like it's like your um, morning or afternoon commute home, right? It's kind of like whenever you're doing the research, you're seeing that experience for the first time versus whenever you're driving home, it's like maybe the first time you drove home from your new job or new apartment or whatever, you know, everything looks new. It's like, oh, that building's there and this is there and that person is there and that store is there. But eventually it just becomes to where it's all a blur and you just like, you don't even pay attention to the little nuance details that you're sort of existing in. Mm-hmm, exactly. And that's kind of immediately what I, where my mind went when you mentioned that. Yep. Yes. But I'm also curious, um, there's really had a question I hadn't thought about until somewhat recently, because I don't know about your experience when it comes to older films is, like personally, I find it challenging to watch older films just primarily because of pacing issues, I think. Mm-hmm. And 
I mean, something like I've been trying to get into like Tarkovsky and whatnot and watching Solaris, which is a beautiful movie, but it's so slow. Slow. Because there's like minimal cutting. <laughs> right. Yeah. It's very interesting to watch old films. Um, I mean, is this, is it something that you think about from the jump whenever you're writing? Is it like, at, are you thinking about this through all stages? Or is it something that you're really conscious of? Because you did mention earlier when you're doing your first film and you have like a five-page monologue. Obviously, like that's playing into kind of what I'm talking about. So I'm kind of curious. I So I have only started recently watching older films. I, I think it started from the idea of, uh, I was able to take some classes and one of them I took was the history of film and we started to explore older films and I... And I think we can, there's, you can learn from all sorts of filmmaking. And even though certain things are slow, I argue that now a lot of the stuff that we do is too fast, you know? So it's, it's seeing, you know, wow, you can actually stay in this wide shot. Yeah. Lawrence of Arabia is like one of those where they like stay in this dialogue heavy scene and it's a wide, it's like no cutaways, just wide shot of them talking and it's crazy because you don't see that very often right. anymore. So I think being able to take that in and incorporate it into your own is is super fun. But um, I have forgotten what the point is that I'm trying <laughs> we're, to say. We're talking about pacing and like, is that something that informs you at like each stage? Because it feels like obviously I think editing uh, is a, editing is definitely probably where like the biggest focus is sure yeah when it comes but is it something whenever you're writing now like, oh, are totally. you thinking like oh i need to, to hit th- this this beat here. is your head like is your head already thinking like when i'm editing this i need this to happen and totally this for pace sake. no pacing starts from the very beginning for sure um and that's i've continued to improve on that as a writer and uh and it's it shows in the final product uh, I used to not think so much about pacing in the beginning, and I think that's the biggest thing that's shifted from the way I write. The more I do, the more I realize how important this, the starting from the beginning for pacing is. Um, and so, yeah, I will. I, I do mull over hitting certain beats at certain times, at certain pages, uh, being concerned when the the uh, theme isn't stated within the first five pages. And I, I definitely mull over that. And it, the more I do films, the more I actually mull over stuff like that. So in the beginning, it wasn't. In the beginning, I was just like, yeah, I'm just going to tell the story the way I want to. And then realizing it just doesn't work. And then figuring it out and saving it in the edit and being like, well, if I had just done that in the writing process, I probably would have saved myself a lot of this excess shooting I did. Um, but I had to f- to figure that out. So, but yeah, it's it's like it's also the same with way with like pre production. I feel like the more I shoot, the the longer length of time it takes me to pre production something. Like I prepare months in advance for a shoot now versus like before. I just pick up a camera and just shoot whenever I feel like it. But now I'm like nervous if I don't spend like three or four months preparing to shoot something. So, because I, you know, the more you know, you know, the more you understand the value of these things that people do. 
you mentioned Lawrence of Arabia, and that kind of makes me think, you know, that's an older film. I wonder how much of that, and really kind of up until that point, or really until like the 70s or so, is how much of that is influenced by like trying to like break free of that kind of stage play, mm. you know what I mean, where you have kind of a stationary view. It feels like that's mom. definitely kind of informing a lot of the early, earlier sure. films. Mm-hmm. I, I yeah, when I took the history of film, it was really interesting to see going from that stage feel to like, oh no, we can actually move the camera. It's so funny that that was a huge revolution. <laughs> right, it seems so natural now that you think about. It. But I guess it's too limited by equipment because you you know yeah. now cameras are a lot lighter. Yeah, I mean, can you imagine like oh yeah, in like no. 1930, a camera was probably a giant giant block, 500 pound yeah. block. Yeah, like nobody would ever imagine like, hey, I can be on a roller skates <laughs> and use this gimbal and like move around and follow these skateboarders. No, yeah, that would never happen back then. Just with the what they have, so. Do you feel like you have developed a personal visual style that you kind of rely on or is it really all in service of the story or what do you, how do you feel about that? So, you know, I wasn't sure, but I definitely had this conversation with a friend of mine because we were discussing, so I'm part of this, I do this one film festival every year called the Louisiana Film Prize and a lot of the same people do it and so we've all become very familiar with each other's work and we were just talking about like hey like when I watch a film I can tell this is an Alexander Jeffries film and when I watch this I can tell it's a Colby and I asked if people could tell if they could tell it was my film and they're like yeah and I I was really surprised uh, because I I tend to jump a lot genre wise you know I've done sci-fi I've done drama I've done comedy and I think it's the themes that are within the films that make my stuff stand out. So maybe not visual for some reason, because I think I'm still experimenting with that. Okay. But they're like, yeah, you explore very similar themes. And I didn't even realize that myself, but we came to the conclusion that the themes I like to explore are fish out of the water, uh, feeling like you don't belong. Um, a, don't judge a book by its cover, but it's this whole like feeling alienated. And, okay. and I realized very quickly why I was doing that. And it's just because of, that's the way I grew up. I, I felt that way all the time. I always felt alien, alienated, not fitting in anywhere. And I just, I didn't realize that that was translating into the films that I, I naturally gravitated towards and, and wrote about. So I, I look at the shorts that I've done for the, just the Louisiana Film Prize alone, and they're right. Every single film is in some way, despite the genre, difference in genre or characters or whatever, has that thread through it. Um, it's weird. I didn't, I didn't even realize that. I didn't realize it until my friend was, because I was noticing other people's threads. So, you know, when you're outside. Right, it's easier in, to see. It's super easy to be like, oh, yeah, like Alex always does this or blah, blah, blah. Um, but, yeah, that's people are like, yeah, we can tell it's when it's your film. Like when it comes on, even before we see the like we know that's your film. So <laughs> I guess I have a style. It just, it, it just happened. Yeah. It wasn't like I 
have to shoot with dollies, like, you know, Wes right. Anderson or whatever. Like, um, I think it just naturally, subconsciously made it style that I didn't realize I had. What about in the sense of, so let's say, do you prefer to do camera movement? Do you like a stationary? Do you like to mix it up? Like, or does, how does that impact kind of your style? And I visually? tend to like movement, but I'm very much about what works for the story. So, you know, I, I will do stuff like, I like reveals. So I like when you have you're in a scene and then you pull back and you reveal where the environment is but then i understand when there's you're wanting to try to feel chaotic and stuff you do more of a you know a shoulder rig type of feel i'm very aware of that and i'm i do think that the visual aspect is something that i continue to explore and continue to learn from the dps that i work with um so maybe that's why I haven't really locked down a definite shooting style. But then again, people have said that the stuff that I personally shoot, they can tell that I shot. So somebody had, who didn't know that I made this music video was like, yeah, I watched this music video and I was like, oh, this looks like something Christine shot. And then your name came up. <laughs> and... and I think it's just super subconscious for me. I don't even realize I'm doing something consistently that everybody else is picking up on type thing. So when I'm the one physically handling the camera, I think you can really see the style. Um, but w when it's, you know, another DP, I'm speaking through him or her, you know? So it's a combination of our styles. So, um, <laughs> Are there any... DPs or even directors in terms of visual style that you admire or you kind of feel like, okay, yeah, I, this is, this is my, my shit maybe. Uh, I mean, I, I know I, there's specific stories that I love, like, um, you know, David Fincher's social network. I love the way that was told. I love the way it was directed. I love the way the camera moved and, and everything. Um, I feel like I should be paying more attention to the actual DP portion of it. I just, I think it's, I'm learning. The, the stuff that I'm learning a lot and learning and incorporating more and more and becoming more brave into using into my films is production design. I never really did much stylistic things because it's a budget thing. Right. So I never had that luxury and I always would shoot in locations that were already kind of the aesthetic that I had right, because that okay. meant less money to spend and stuff like that. Now I'm really understanding like how much that affects the look of something and, and that it's not, I, I, I had thought wrongly. I mean, some of it is because of the coloring and, and, and whatever, but that only goes so far, really, if you wanted a certain look, like Wes Anderson's palette choices are extremely strict. Um, the, from the clothing that's there, from the items that are there, I've been playing with that a lot in terms of like 
paying more and more attention to those visuals. But in terms of like DP wise, uh, I think I choose DPs based off of just flexibility, if that makes any sense. Like I will see something that they've worked on and I really like the way they shot that. And so then I'll talk to them and figure out like when I have another film and it's supposed to look like that, then I'll ask that particular DP and stuff like that. Um, so I tend to jump around when it comes to DPs these days. Um, I've been exploring different kinds of DPs. <laughs> <laughs> so it's something I'm learning, I guess, is the in conclusion, is that it's not something I have a strong, like, I have to have it by this one person it has looked gotcha. this way type thing. What, so. a, what about from, like, if you're just going to go see a film, like, are there any films that stand out that you just love the visual language of in particular? Uh... I mean, I, I loved, um, like, No Country for Old Men. Oh, yeah. Um, it's a personal, super, it's in my top five, cool for sure. Feel. Top five, top five. Yeah. <laughs> I loved um, things with big expanses and uh, landscaping. Uh, I tend to really like things that are use the natural world that we live in. Um but I also love stuff like Moulin Rouge and and uh, stuff with crazy set deck and glitter and glam and, and stuff like that. So I don't know. I It's again, it's like I can pinpoint little pieces of stuff that I like, but it's never like this is the film that embodies like everything <laughs> that I want to be, you know, type thing. Makes so. sense. Okay. Um, you mentioned something interesting, too, that I wanted to touch on in just how you progressed in terms of thinking about set design, production design. Can you give us maybe a concrete example of, of something that you've tried to integrate on a film? Maybe one that you've already produced so we don't spoil. Yeah. <laughs> um, I mean, like maybe th- talk about some of the choices that you're making and like how, how far down the rabbit hole are you going? Are you giving like your art department some freedom there? Or like what's the conversation like? Sure. So I think the first time that we read, really started to pay attention to our design was when we made our first sci-fi f- film because you're creating an entirely new world and everything you can't just be like hey let's just have the actors bring whatever is in their wardrobe and we'll just figure it out from there that had that's been my theme in all my other films like hey because of no budget like we're just right. gonna figure out what <laughs> the person owns and then figure out from there well from this, I discovered the power of returning things. And then I realized that there's this whole world of things I could buy and just return. <laughs> and it still wouldn't spend money. Guerrilla filmmaking. Yeah, go, right? so, so I started to be really brave to try and actually stylize certain things. So I, there's in The Earth Below, um, we had a lot of white items and white. Th- we we took inspiration from like Japanese minimalism. Minimal- minimalism and um just stuff like that and and started to actually really plan like we had all the wardrobe and everything all purchased for all the actors from the shoes to everything like way in advance um 
also from the set deck, we had to create it because it's a non-existent world. So um, we shot it in an art gallery where we kind of redesigned the lighting, the layout, and um, so that was that was really neat. And I think it was from that film on, I almost like gave myself permission to to play more with. I wasn't afraid of it anymore. Yeah. Yeah, I, I before that I was afraid of it because of cost reasons. Makes sense. Yeah. So from that on we started to plan more. So f- after the earth below, we did period. When you got to do period pieces. Oh wow. I you, wouldn't even yeah, <laughs> I'd be afraid you to. really need to like plan everything to the T because any little wrong item will take Stands people out, out of too, the right. film. That's when you really like pay attention to our design. So uh, I was lucky to be on a 1960s drag queen short film, and that was fascinating to from all the wardrobe pieces for every single extra to uh, creating the world to the houses to the that was pretty cool. So yeah, but. It's really, really, really made me appreciate my production designer, <laughs> Kelly. <Nice. laughs> I do have a recommendation for you. If you should see the or pay attention to the production design and costuming in David Lynch's version of Dune. Okay. Oh my God! It's yeah. Some of the most badass set design costuming that I've ever seen. The art direction is just—it's amazing. All the right. movie is kind of you know it's problematic, but I I love it. Yeah. I always have. It's been a big influence on me, but cool. I definitely, will definitely check that like, out because I haven't seen that. So ooh, it's it looks write it down. incredible. Dune. It's so it's so bizarre okay. and just this weird like amalgamation. It's kind of a contrast between it's it's set in the future, but it has this feudalistic approach too. So okay. there's a mixture of like these high tech things, but also a little bit of a baroque romanticism to it as well. It's a really interesting contrast, I think. I've I was talking to my team, and we really want to do some sort of post-apocalyptic, post type of like thing with like steampunk. You know what I'm talking uh, okay. about? Where it's right on. like it's somewhat it's it's almost like that um, because I don't. So the whole thing with Dune is. It's set way in the future, like the year ten thousand, mm-hmm. and all of the. So they out. They had a whole. I, what's called the Butlerian Jihad, mm-hmm. where they basically outlawed all computers. Like they fought a holy war over computers, and now yeah. there are no more computers. There are like people that um, are specially trained that kind of perform the same That's capacity, cool. which is kind of an interesting yeah touch. So, but I, we've wanted to do something like that. To, uh, surprisingly when you put something into the world it comes back at you tenfold so right then you see it everywhere everywhere you know, so that's why it kind of happened with per- our period piece thing last year we were like what was it last year i think it was early last year like you know what i'd like to do some period piece then like everything we did after that was a period like somehow the world was like here you go you asked for it so i'm putting into the world a, a post-apocalyptic just, just gonna say uh that i love i'm obsessed with post-apocalyptic imagery and fashion and story like anything post-apocalyptic i'm t- completely sold on that yeah yeah that's so my like shit a right mad now. max did you what did you think of mad max i know that's not like 
but that's kind of a post. Yeah, that's yeah, that's pretty much my vibe. Um, yeah, I liked it for the most part. I mean, I do like. I love Tom Hardy. I, love I thought Tom it was Hardy. an interesting, you know, beautifully look, beautiful look to it. Yeah, um, it didn't quite hit the thematic elements as hard as I liked to. Sure, I like a little bit more of you know hitting on some of the more. I guess deeper messages and unraveling some things, but mm-hmm. I mean, you know, I really enjoyed it. Yeah, I, and I, I definitely the aesthetic, the aesthetic is, even the, yeah. even going back to uh, whatever was it, the Road Warrior, the the actual the second film mm-hmm. in particular. I mean, that really gritty, all black leather stuff. I mean, that's, yeah. that's my shit too. <laughs> I also really want to do a. I guess it's called neo noir, neo noir with like uh, neon sign, like ne- play, kind of like what Drive was. Okay. This dark, gritty neon signs and that kind of feel of. Uh, the film. original Blade Runner kind of had that vibe too. Okay. A little bit, yeah. Yeah, you know what? Sadly, I have not seen the original oh Blade Runner. I've only you, seen the new one, oh. which I all really liked. Um, but well, I liked the cinematography in it. So. Oh, there's. The original has some of the most beautiful photography I've ever seen. Like, there yeah. are some standout moments that are just, whoa, I mean, just, like, want to cry when I see them. Yeah, I so need you, a, you I must need see a, it. <laughs> it's sad because, like, I Especially think... Especially if you're doing post-apocalyptic. I think my world is so immersed into films that when I just want to vegetate, I have this vice where I just watch really shitty films. <laughs> like, really, like terrible like just dance films and things that i don't have to think about so all these like amazing films are on my list i just don't watch because my brain's like just let me watch a cooking show (laughs) makes sense (laughs) i mean you're out here making films i'm just like appreciating them so i can appreciate that too put it on my list though cool yeah definitely i I mean if you're especially if you're thinking post-apocalyptic i would highly recommend those two films Mm -hmm. just visual style alone i mean wow Breathtaking, yeah. particularly Blade Runner, when it comes yeah. to cinematography. That's, a, that's another thing that's like gonna cost so much. <laughs> right. So that's the struggle. It's like you want to do these stylized, fun, art, heavy things, and then you're like, yeah, but it costs money. So I just, I just need a sugar daddy. <laughs> <laughs> so anybody out there? Right. Just kidding. Five, five, five. No. <laughs> <laughs> Jk. Um. But back back to some more substantive topics. Do you have a preference for like? Do you want to shoot your own? Do you want to write, shoot, edit? Do you want to just write? Would you rather just direct? Do I you... would love to just direct. Just direct. Okay. Um, I think that works really well. I would love to. I don't mind co-writing. Um, I would. I think. Yeah, no, I, I love directing. That's the one job that I want to just do all the time, basically. Um, I've just had to produce out of necessity because there aren't... Producing is a very... It's a, one of those jobs that just doesn't get enough credit, you know? And it's the behind the scenes. Nobody gives a crap about the producer, but they do the most work. I think but half the people in the world don't even know what a producer really does. Right. Um. So, yeah, so I, I would love that I didn't have to produce. I wouldn't, I've directed a few things that I hadn't written. I, lo- I enjoy that a lot. Um, but I think a perfect combination would be like, I have a story idea 
maybe I get the base of it and then I have somebody, a team or whatever, help me get the script to where it should be type thing and it doesn't have to be me writing it like i, I definitely want to be involved yeah. in the story though like i want to read it and be like i don't like this or change right. this or change this blah, blah blah i don't think i can even in the ones i didn't write it's very hard for me not to do that to be like go in and try to make script changes and stuff which probably drives the writer nuts but so that's why that collaborative um i'd like to keep that portion but i i'm totally cool never producing anything <laughs> I'm just really good at it. So I end up producing a lot of people's stuff. And a lot of times it's the job that nobody wants. And it's an easy way in to get access to stuff that you want to do. So same thing with assistant directing. I'm just really good at it. It gets me access to crew that I'd never met before. And I get to learn how what not to do on, a, on my own sets from all the directors I help. <laughs> But, uh, so yeah, for me, it's the closest to directing that I get to learn from, but am I cool? Never ever assist in directing again. If I could direct forever and make a living from it, totally. So. Do you have a favorite thing that you've done is, and is it different or they're like something that you really like that you just directed or you just wrote or, you know what I mean? Is there a difference? Do you have, what, what kind of stands out as something that like you're the most proud of or happy with? Uh, the film that I'm most known for that I'm extremely proud of is Ya'albi, My Heart Ya'albi. Uh, it's the Syrian refugee crisis film. Uh, not only because of the topic, but because it was extremely, extremely well received. And it wasn't just like, oh, the liberals all liked it. You know, it was like, I felt like it had an impact on, it, the purpose wasn't to change people's minds. The purpose was to open people's minds to a different way of thinking and so when you're I mean the film premiered in Louisiana which is a very red conservative state and when you have people who are very much like Trump blah 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 come up to you and be like all right like I get what you did and I like it you tell a great story that's something or you have people talking about it or, or whatever and, and that's that was and that was a perfect balance of writing about something I didn't know, yet I injected a lot of myself into that because the story started off as more of an immigration story, hiding stories my parents told me about their immigration status. They were not refugees, but they definitely immigrated here. Um, I hid those in just a more modern context of the Syrian refugee crisis, and so it was that perfect balance I was saying where. You know, there's me in it, yet I didn't know enough about it that I did the research, so it all, like, came together type thing. Um, and it, I had the opportunity of showing it to, there's a refugee, uh, sorry, Syrian refugee helping a community here, and I showed it to, their, to, to, to them, and that was... That was super nerve-wracking because I'm like, oh, I'm showing a film that I wrote about you guys, basically. Right. I hope I did it justice because clearly, you know, I'm not, never been in your shoes or, or anything. And the response to that was, like, just amazing, too. People being like, you just, you told it right. And, like, like people were crying because that, that, when they came up to me saying, like, that's what their experience was and stuff like that, I think that I'm extremely 
extremely proud of that film. And I, and I know that it's going to go to a longer form. I've had a lot of people ask me about it. We took it all the way to the Academy qualification process. So that film was Academy qualified. So it was in the running to pour up. It didn't get shortlisted, but it was at least included in the list of films being considered to be shortlisted for the Academy Awards for 2018 this year. Um, So it was just, but I dedicated like two years of my life to that film. It was because you make the film, then you do the whole festival circuit for a whole year, and then we qualified our film for the Academy process, which is yet another year. And I'm still riding that wave for, for Yalbi, yeah, and that was a film I made in 2016. So though I know it's it will come where I make the longer form of that film, I mentally, emotionally needed a break from it. <laughs> but I'm extremely, extremely proud of that film, and... Anytime somebody says, hey, show me something you've done, that's the first film I show them. Because, I don't know, I think it's some of my best work. So, How much do you think that, you mentioned having sort of that personal experience of alienation, like do you think that is something that maybe led to like, because you, you probably hit on some truth there, like your own. Oh yeah, totally. Experience. Yeah, that's all, it's in there for sure. Um, the, the The story without any spoilers, is about a Syrian refugee who's been granted access into the United States, and uh, at the last minute, her husband is denied access, and so she's alone in the U.S. trying to figure out how to get her husband here. So the crazy thing is we wrote this before the Muslim ban, oh, wow. the, tra- the Muslim travel ban. When that happened, that's when like I was getting calls and stuff, being like, you need to make this into a full full film. Yeah, but we wrote it before that. So it's just crazy. And when that happened, it was this really surreal experience. Like, holy shit, like, what I wrote became true. Like, that's terrible. Oh, interesting. But my film is now, like, so relevant, it's not even funny. Yeah, it was weird. <laughs> you have your finger on the pulse of reality or something. Yeah, it was very strange. But, uh, yeah, I'm, if you ever have a chance, that's the film that I would share and right. have you watch too. Is there, where can I find it? Uh, so I would have to send you a screener link. Oh, okay, gotcha. It is being screened on like Shorts TV, which is the channel on cable that allows you to watch shorts and stuff like that. Uh, but yeah, screener link, we're going to probably, it, it, there's this cycle that films go through and it's like the film festival cycle and after the film festival cycle then you screen at smaller film festivals and after that then like distribution and whatnot so the easiest way is to be like hey send me the link right and i definitely (laughs) you should absolutely send me any links to any of your work that you want to or any really anything that you want to share cool Um, because i can throw it up on the show notes cool and whatever you know i have a small audience but Whatever I can do to help, you know, at all, right? Yes. I can give you a secret link. (laughs) Um, Another random question, but this is, so how do you feel about voiceover? Um, You know, I always hear that it's kind of the bane of screenwriters, but, you know, I find that a lot of the movies that I've really loved have relied at least in some part on voiceover. And I don't know what it is about that that attracts me to it. I'm, I don't hate it or love it. I think I would, there's sometimes 
scripts that I've battled with. Hey, I want to do this with voiceover, but I didn't. I, I, but not because I don't believe that it's a great technique. I think it, it it's awesome. I just don't think I've had a story that would be told best with voiceover yet. Um, I, I think it's I think when used well with the context of whatever story is being told, it can be extremely powerful. Like in Shawshank Redemption, like that was really well Very true, used, yeah. you know? Um, I can't imagine. And that's, it's funny that you mentioned Shawshank because off the top of my head, like I've seen that movie so many times, but the voiceover isn't you, something that right, I even like thought about, because right? Because it's, it's so ingrained and so duh in the movie. Uh, Forrest Gump. Yeah. Yeah, true. Yeah, and that's thing. not you know what I mean. It's funny that you. That's another one where I'm like, yeah, like that's not the first thing that comes to yeah. mind when American I think about Beauty. it. Yeah, true. Okay. What are the ones that you think about when you think about voiceover? I mean, like Apocalypse Now, okay. Fight Club. Mm. Um, trying to think, even something like The Thin Red Line. Mm-hmm. Um, Memento. Memento, yeah. That I thought Memento's use was great. That's one of those films that you don't even realize. It's did I so did I say American Psycho? American Psycho has some moments. Yeah, yeah. I'm actually so I'm doing a podcast uh, review of American Psycho yes. tomorrow, so it's like fresh on my mind. I that scene where they're comparing the the cards. Oh yeah, business cards, and it's all in his head, and he's like really angry that the. Stop my car. Yeah. Oh my god. <laughs> like I love that. <laughs> it's brilliant, ridiculous. It, it's funny because like. On paper, that's not supposed to work, right? Because it's like a complete different tangent that has nothing really to... But it really gives you an insight to his it character. It so does, right? Yeah. It's very fascinating. That was It's funny how that's such a iconic scene. It really is. Yeah. Because I've here... Uh, I watched a little clip of uh, the author of the actual novel okay. talking about it. And he thought that, you know, that's kind of one thing where like... He didn't even really get. It was kind of like a almost like a throwaway scene in the book for him. Yeah. But then he no like he he, he in his opinion, the film kind of did what he was set out to do in in a sort of a better way. I think is you kind of what, what? he ex- explained. I've experienced that on on my own films. That's why it's they say it's so important to watch your stuff with an audience. Uh, for the most part. Even though we all have different experiences and we come from different backgrounds, the way we react to films is surprisingly very similar. You know, like when people find something funny, most people find that part funny or blah, blah, blah. And so it is an entirely different experience when you watch it for the first time with a bunch of people because you're, that's when you actually see where things work or where things are not working. Um I just, one of the earlier shorts I did at Bird's Nest is a horror thriller, closest to horror that I'll probably ever do, um, but very thriller, suspense type thing, and uh, there are key moments in there that I know were cool, but then when you saw them with an audience and people were like gasping and like, (gasps) you know, you're like, whoa, I didn't know that that was that impactful. I'm just so desensitized to it, you know, so... um, that's awesome. I, how is is that? What is that feeling like when you're sitting there and you get are getting these reactions? Is that like, I feel like I would just 
blow up. I it's would be so cool. amazed and just like that's that's like what you're going for. You know, you, you want that. I think the right. worst feedback is not any feedback. Right. It's better for people to hate your movie. That's at least a reaction that they care enough to have a reaction. No reaction is worse because you're just like it. It's almost as if they didn't even watch the movie. You know, like. <laughs> You want to affect people in some sort of way. So it's cool when you see that. You see, like, it's it's morbid, but I, I love it when you're when I'm able to make someone cry, you know? Um, because it's not a feeling that we want to easily, readily express. So you're trying to pull these little things that we shove down into our deep, dark spaces, and you pull them out, and it's, you feel pretty closest to god that you can feel <laughs> uh, that's awesome that's what it's all about um i always feeding our egos <laughs> essentially yes but um it's funny that you mentioned that because i don't know how familiar you are with uh alejandro jodorowsky but mm-hmm. he um he you know he's done some really crazy films uh, i don't know how much familiarity he had but he was going to do a version of dune okay and there's actually a documentary called Hodorowsky's Dune about the whole process because it was like this legendary thing. He was going to have Dolly be in the film and H.R. Geiger was going to contribute to the art, which actually ironically did end up being part of the David Lynch version Mm. later on. But he's talking about, I want people to have the experience of taking LSD when they see my movie, but without actually taking LSD. And I'm like, yes. <laughs> that's great, yes. That is it. You, you you nailed it. Love it. So that's funny. Love it. <laughs> yeah, but that's part of the high is experiencing, getting to see your film and experiencing it with the audience. I mean, I know you're sort of joking to some degree about like feeling like a god, but... I really do feel feel like when it comes to editing, it's like you are you are constructing this reality. It's really yeah. You, the, everything's. I think that's why I ended up going narrative. Um, when you're in documentary, you're very much controlled by the situation, obviously, and uh, that's where the story comes. Is what situations you're able to capture in your camera. But with narrative, every little element is within your control to affect. And elicit a certain emotion, you know, from the music to the look to the acting to the every, every little thing. If you change it just a little bit, can change the whole mood of and the way you the kind of reaction you're going to get. So I think that's why narratives to me is 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 just absolutely fascinating, and why I though I've been interested in virtual reality haven't really been able to explore too much about it because like the 360 cameras are pretty freaking cool, but like you can't light. At least I haven't figured out a way to without, cause you're going to see the lights. Hmm. It's like, unless you're like edit them out or something like, but it's that you don't have those elements that you can control anymore. Oh, that's a good point. I hadn't yeah. even thought about that. Yeah. I have this little 360 camera that I like tried to play with and like, I'm like, I can't hide anything. Like, even me holding the camera, you can see that. Yeah. I'm sure there's ways around. I just don't know yet. But. Is there anything else uh, we haven't touched on that 
you'd like to talk about or share? Do you have any questions for me even? <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. Because um, I have one question, but it's like this b- boring it's, it's a like boring the most question. Boring, most boring question I've asked today, <laughs> I think. Uh, I don't know. I could talk about films all the time. I mean, I just, I love the process. I think that's when you know that you're in the right industry is when you get up at like 5.30 a.m. and then you get out at maybe 12-hour day or a 15-hour day and you're like, I'm stupid. Why did I do that? And then the next day you're like, when's the next one? <laughs> yeah. And, uh, I, I mean, like the product is great, but for me, it's, it starts from the beginning. It's the whole process and seeing an idea morph and change for the better because you apply the knowledge of all those who are much better at what they do than you just, it's a, there's never a day when I'm bored because I'm always learning so much from other people and growing as a filmmaker and, and, and and morphing my my style and and maturing my way of storytelling as well. So it for me it's just I think it came from I never growing up and never it's the whole alienation thing, but I never really had a way that I felt like I was comfortable voicing what I thought in my inner things and opinions, but I have no problem doing that through film. <laughs> awesome. <clears throat> Actually, I, I didn't think to ask this earlier, but what um do you have? What are you working on now? Are you writing something? Are you in pre-production? Like, what do you have? Like a couple of different yeah, balls I've, in the air. I always have like my hand in the several cookie jars. <laughs> so I am writing a feature right now um, that I'm on page sixty right now, and uh, so th- 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 there's that. There's another feature in my head that I'm kind of in early stage development. Um, it's a based off of a true person, so I have to figure out, navigate, like what it does it take to get life right. Slash, um, I've been lucky to have some connections with the person's actual friends and stuff like that. So I've been doing like interviews and stuff to like research, basically. Um, I am in post production for a short film that I'm entering into the HBO. I think it's APA, Asian Visionaries Contest type thing, but it's for like Asian American filmmakers basically. Um, so so that's in post. I'm about to jump on on the 19th for a 17-day shoot feature. Or I'm just I'm assistant directing on that. Um, but my my brain is constantly just going. And you kind of have to be because you just never know like what will work or what will stick. So you just kind of are always and you, and like all artists, we get bored, you know. So I, I'll do this. I'll write the feature and then I get bored up on it, and then I'll just jump on this other better idea or like this other one I'm not bored with, and I'll write that and get bored with it and jump back onto it. So it's just it's just how my brain works. Yeah. Last question is is the eighth grade homeroom question is what uh what's your advice for aspiring is this the boring question this is the this is the (laughs) boilerplate like question but i've got to ask it what's your Uh, advice out there the advice is not to wait uh the advice is things are going to be given to you opportunities are not going to be given to you if you want to make something there's enough resources out there that you can find to make something it always nothing 
makes me more angry when someone's like, oh, I'm going to make something, but I don't have this or I don't have this other thing or whatever. And I'm like, just shoot it with your phone. Like there's just, there's no excuse not to be making something. Like I didn't have resources when I came out. I knew nobody in Austin, Texas. I knew my parents aren't filmmakers. None of them are artists or they think I'm crazy being an artist. And so I, I didn't, I didn't have my parents being supportive. They never bought me any film equipment, you know, um, I had no background really in in films, yet I've probably made more films than a lot of film you made students have. More films than I have. Yeah. <laughs> but that's, Features that's, and shit. But that's the thing. It's just like if you really want to make it, you will, and you'll figure it out. And it's okay if you don't have the best equipment. If you look at my earlier stuff, it's probably not very good. But like I learned from that, so um, I, that would be my biggest advice. Is is just do and then figure it out and people <laughs> people hire people because they're some they're not only people that you want to work with but people that you don't mind spending time after work with because you're going to be with these people for hours 12 15 hours and stress brings out the worst in people and, you know me too and uh you want people who you can trust and have your back and it's okay if they're not like the best you know sound person or whatever they can learn that my biggest mistake that I did in the very beginning when I started pursuing narrative was thinking that I had to hire people based off of their equipment and what they had I hated my first crew like absolutely hated um none of them are making films I'm pretty sure but they had a lot of equipment and I was like, well, I don't have any of this equipment. So I'm just going to hire them because of that. And it was the worst mistake of my life. So yeah, hire people because you can trust them. Yeah. And because they, you know, that they have your back and, and everything. So yeah. So just do it. <laughs> and that's super cliche. Nike. Nike. Um, and then, cause you'll figure it out. And, um, uh, people, and make a lot of stuff, <laughs> even if it's shit, because it will be. Well, Christine, I th I automatically feel like this is a fantastic podcast. Automatically, it, it, yes. <laughs> like I, you know, I can sometimes tell, like in the middle of a one, that it's yeah. going great. And I definitely think this is one of those episodes. So I hope, hope people find it interesting. I I hope so too. I I really thought the conversation flew. I mean, it was perfect. I I couldn't have asked for a better uh, a better guest this week. Oh well, I had such great questions. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Thank you so much. I I have fun. I can talk about film all the time. Likewise, and uh, hence why I do this podcast, or at least part of it. So, but anyways, that thanks again, Christine, for joining me this week on podcast care of cooper cherry awesome and if anybody ever wants to see my films go follow it on moptoflamefilms.com or i have my own website too christinewchen.com yay plug <laughs> that's what we're here for but uh we are signing off for this week thank you all righty bye <laughs>